I'm really intrigued with this whole idea that nobody knows that we're a hypocrite. Everyone can see somebody else's hypocrisy. We have a really hard time seeing our own hypocrisy. And no matter what we choose, it is a human natural tendency to justify what we have chosen, even if it might be not the right thing. And it often takes a while for us to admit when we've made mistakes or believed wrong things or taken wrong paths. Um, and I, I don't know when it was, but a while back, I, I came into this concept of John 5.44, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, he asked them this theoretical question. He says, how can you believe when you seek the praise of each other instead of praise from the Father? That's a fascinating idea. How can you believe when what you're seeking is for your peers to approve of you? How are you going to believe God? Then you go, wait a minute, hold on now. What does, why would that keep you from mentally believing? And a, like, as I reflected on that, as I, as I just kind of spent some time with it, it, it occurred to me, oh my word, what Jesus is saying is, our hearts, once our hearts are set on something, our minds will justify it. We'll rationalize it. We'll make a case for it. We'll look at all the evidence in support of it and only cherry pick out that evidence. And we'll look at any evidence against that and we'll go and come up with reasons why that evidence isn't convincing. That, that our brains justify what our hearts have chosen. So if our hearts are set on the wrong things, our minds are going to rationalize those wrong things. And if our hearts are set on the right things, our minds are going to line up and actually serve those right things by reasoning it out in the right ways. Is that weird? Uh, to me, that was like, really? Okay. If our hearts choose the wrong things, our minds are going to rationalize and justify it and look at the evidence for it. And they're going to find the evidence to support the wrong thing. And we're going to, in other words, we're going to convince ourselves that the wrong thing we've chosen is the right thing. But if we choose the right thing, our brains are going to find the right evidence to support that right thing. So Jesus says to the Pharisees who are attacking him and they're saying, you know, there is, there is basically his enemies, even though they're the Bible people, which is shocking, shocking. And he goes, you know what your problem is? You, you, pre, you pretend to be serving God, but you're actually only in this for self-image. You, uh, you want the church people to like you. You're more interested in the church people approving of you than you are in pleasing God. And because of that, you've blinded yourself and you're incapable of actually hearing and seeing God. The praise of men has blinded you. And you go, whoa, that's... Talk about, talk about intense and a little scary. And then Jesus even warns his disciples to beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think. And then his disciples are like, oh, uh, he must be talking about we, don't, we didn't bring enough bread. And he's like, you know, facepalm Jesus. Jesus facepalms himself and says, really, guys, you think I'm talking about bread? We just came from a crowd of people who were hungry. We had one little boy's lunch. I thanked God. I tore pieces off all day long. And the next thing you know, we had baskets full of leftover bread. It was a miracle of multiplication. And you think I'm worried about forgetting bread? I'm trying to warn you not to be like 
the religious leaders who think they're right. Their self-image is, I'm a good person. And because they're so sure they're a good person, they are incapable of, of admitting the parts of their life that prove they're not. Because our righteousness, our sense of identity, is so easily threatened. And, and when we have these two beliefs at the same time that contradict, I'm a good person, meets with, actually, I'm greedy, we go, no, I'm not greedy. I'm careful with my money. Right? It's hard to live with the tension of I'm a good person and actually admit where I'm not a good person in actions. And that's really the whole talk tonight is how, how deeply dangerous it is that once our hearts are set on the wrong thing, our minds make us blind to anything that to the contrary. Uh, Jesus is a genius. And as I study psychology and, and the evidence and the surveys and tests done by psychologists to track human behavior and how we, how we actually operate, it just proves over and over to me that Jesus is a genius. Here's one of the genius things. It's the treasure principle. And you'll see in a minute why I use this little uh, memory tool of 1, 2, 3, 4. It's Luke 12, 34. 1, 2, 3, 4. Well, if they follow after each other. And the treasure principle is this. Your heart will follow after what? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he doesn't say what we would say. Notice he doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will, will be. What he says is where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, we just think, oh, your choices reflect your priorities. And he says, no, 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 your choices define and, and affect your loves. Whatever gets your time, your treasure, and your, and your talent, that's fine. You can say it however you like to say it. This is sort of how I say it. What gets your time, what gets your money, and what gets your... Uh, your your, what you do with your hands and your skills, that's what gets you, ultimately. Right? Which is why we actually tell people when they become a Christian and join the church, we actually tell them to take 10% of the income when you get a paycheck and you just hand it straight to God. No questions asked. And that's like crazy to the world. They're like, what are you talking about? I give 10% of my income to my local church? Why? Because God knows that he'll never get your heart if he doesn't get your time and your money and your hobbies and your interests and the, what you read, what you put in your ears and your eyes. Because what you focus on and spend your time on and spend your money on, it actually grows bigger and bigger in your affections and your heart. And then like what we just saw, that becomes the thing your heart has committed to. And then once it's what your heart has committed to, it's what your mind will actually begin to automatically serve. It'll do you well. You'll look for evidence. If, you're, if your treasure is in God, if your treasure is in heaven, your brain's going to see justifications of why he's so good and what you did in choosing him was such a smart choice. You're going to see evidences of his kindness and his grace all over if your heart belongs to him. And it's going to be a shield of faith that's going to rise up. Next thing you know, when the storms come, you're going to know you made the right choice. If your heart is fully his, he's going to actually even come and send his spirit and he's going to strengthen you. There's a whole bunch of Bible verses that say what I'm saying. I'm just not quoting them. But this treasure principle says this. It's extremely important to Jesus that, that he gets your time and your money and your hobby and your friendships. Because if he does, he gets your heart. Because that's how the heart works. That's not him being demanding. That's him being loving. In the Old Testament, God set it up so that worship was not singing songs. Worship was what? What? 
It, it involved praising him, but the essence of worship was what? You kill an animal that's expensive, your best animal, your priciest animal. You bring him your best, your most expensive thing, and you bring it into his presence and you kill it and you offer it to him. Worship was sacrifice. Sacrifice. And he wants your heart more than he wants your sacrifice. He wants your obedience more than sacrifice. The prophets are constantly saying this. So then why does he even want your sacrifice? Because he wants your heart. And he knows the only way he's going to get your heart is if he, if he requires you a sacrifice, a costly one, an expensive one. He actually, he actually doesn't need your attention. He loves you. He's doing okay. He doesn't need your offerings. So why does he ask you to give them? Because he wants your heart and because he knows that the way you work, the way your heart is designed to work is you will worship false things. You will bow down and serve and be enslaved to things that kill you if he doesn't require you to bow down and worship the one who actually is for you and is perfectly loved and perfectly trustworthy. Every other God will kill you. Every other false God, wealth, status, money, sex, romance, you can make your spouse your God and they will not fulfill your expectations of them to, fulfill, to, to be and do for you what Jesus is for you. I loved how my mom said it to me when I, was, when I was young. Mom's advice didn't make as much sense to me, but now that I'm older, it makes a lot more sense to me. She would say, never marry someone you need or you'll have two needy people who are incomplete sucking each other dry. Find your completion in God and then come and serve each other in love out of the overflow of who he is. And I was like, what? But that's not romantic. <laughs> you know. So I have a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay, Ben Franklin. This is crazy, right? There was this guy, let's call it Ben Franklin's insight. There was this guy who just hated Ben Franklin. I don't know if he was in, worked in the, in the, the house or this, I don't know how the, I don't know who it was, but he just talked and I don't think he wanted to say the guy's name in his writings, but he said there was this dude who hated him. And he was so nice, Ben Franklin was so nice to try to get this guy to like him. Nothing he did could make this guy like him. So suddenly one day he came up with an idea. He wrote the man a letter and asked to borrow a book from his personal library and said, hey, could you help me out? Could you do me a favor? And the guy was like, well, okay, even though I don't like you, yeah, you're in need. I'm not a jerk. I'm a good person. Notice, notice that. I'm a good person, so of course I'll share a book with you because I'm a good person. I don't hold grudges. I'm bigger than that. So he sends him the book in the mail. Ben Franklin reads it, keeps it for a week, sends it back with a thank you note. Next time they see each other in public, the guy actually will talk to him. He wouldn't even talk to him before. He wouldn't even acknowledge him before. Now he's like, oh yeah, you, oh yeah, I was nice to you. And I'm a good person, so I was nice to you. And because I was nice to you, you must not be that bad of a dude. In fact, I'm the kind of guy who's nice to people. I was nice to you, and that's who I am, because I'm a nice person. You see what's going on? He did Ben Franklin a favor. And when he exercised his will to do a kindness toward Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin's kindness toward him didn't do nothing. But his choice to move in kindness toward Ben Franklin changed his will and now his brain is saying, hey, not only am I the sort of person who would do nice things, 
Well, I wouldn't do nice things for an idiot. Ben Franklin's not an idiot. He's a good guy. He's my buddy. And it's, ben Franklin says this. He says, he and I struck up a friendship and we were close friends until his death ever since then. I don't know how to spell this one. So we're going to pretend that this is how you spell Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky's insight. One of his characters said this. One of his characters hated this other guy. I mean, hated this other guy. And, this, and he was asked, why do you hate him? Did he do some wrong to you? Did he do wrong to you? He said, no, he's never done a thing wrong to me. But I did him an evil turn, and I've hated him every, ever since. What's that about, guys? Interesting. What is that? He didn't want to, because I'm a good person, and I did you wrong. Th those two ideas aren't compatible, so to relieve the tension, what do I have to do now? You deserved it. You're worthy of that treatment. Why did I hate him, he says? Did he do me wrong? No, he didn't do me any wrong. I did him wrong, and I've hated him ever since. Again, once the heart chooses something, the mind rationalizes it. It's why we don't know when we're completely full of crap, but we can see when others are. It's Jesus knows this and says, I, I'm going to command you to put your will in a certain path, or it's going to wreck you if you don't. And Ben Franklin said, hey, you know what? I'm on to something with this. And Dostoevsky, in his, his, he wrote big books, books that like, smart people would read and then talk about them, or smart people <laughs> would talk about it and then I would listen to them. <laughs> That's how it goes for me. I listen to them talk about it. What's, go for it, go for it. Which one? Yeah. You know, when somebody, they really, there's just something that, you know, like, oh, this, this, whatever. And it's usually because that's something that you need to look at yourself. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly. So I, I, okay. I think I know what you mean. It's so potent. You have such an understanding of it because, guess what? The things that bother you the most about others are often the things you struggle with. Yeah, something like that. I had a friend who always accused me of being manipulative because he was manipulative. You know? Yeah. The guys who struggle with lust the most are the most upset at the women for causing them to lust when it's actually their issue a lot of the time. But having gone what we just went through, you know. Oh, dear. Yeah, right. Let's, let's put that up here, and we'll call it the Romans 2 principle. Because the Romans 2 principle says, you Jews who have the Bible, who think you're better than everyone else, actually the thing you condemn is the thing you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> now we're all meddling. <laughs> we think the thing, the thing that most offends us is often, I don't know, I've been frustrated with people who, who just... Have you ever been frustrated with people who just quit church? Because you didn't quit church and you're paying a high price to not quit church? Or not saying you should. That's, a, that, that's not a wise jealousy, but 
Why are you that upset? Sometimes it's, we should notice what really gets us triggered. Because if it's like, okay, so, something really triggered me once recently. It had to do with a friend of mine who left a tiny church that I love, and he joined a mega church. And I was ticked. And I said, wait a minute, I don't think I'm reacting to him. I think I'm reacting to something else in my life and now he's just touching it. with He's like pushing it like it's a button. In my mind, it's about him. But that's not. Oh, brother, there's, there's something wrong in here. And that's why I'm on that one. Anyway, let's see what else we got here. Oh, yes, this one's fun. In the 70s, there was this really uh, popular, popular concept called catharsis. You ever heard of it? It's the idea that if you're really angry, you should scream. That if you're really mad, you should punch a pillow. If you're really upset, you should go outside and swing branches and just get it out. And there's even these, uh, oh, let's see. I won't cuss, but the doll, there's a doll designed for you to take out your frustrations on by slamming the doll on the ground, and it's called a bleep-it doll. And there's even a poem they wrote for the Bleep It doll that says basically, when you get very upset, and it all rhymes, but I'm not going to do it. When you get very upset and you can't handle it, then you just grab the doll and smack it on the ground saying, bleep, 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 yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you beat the baby up. It's crazy. And this was supposed to be healing and healthy because the idea was catharsis. Catharsis being, you just need to get it all out and you'll feel better. And they did studies on this that showed the opposite is the truth. That when you give, uh, let's see if I can. A fool gives full vent to his anger. They, they, did, they did studies, these are not Christians doing these studies, they did psychological studies on this, letting people express, okay, they, they brought people in for this experiment and the interviewer was rude to them, said something mean about their mom. That'll trigger anybody. And then afterward, they were allowed to talk to his manager and get him in trouble and maybe get his job fired, right? The ones that talked to the manager to get him fired, they then had their blood pressure checked and their, and their, and, and their view of the, the dude who was rude to them checked. The ones, the ones that took the opportunity to complain to the manager, because some were given the opportunity, some were not. The ones that took the opportunity to complain to the manager and get it out, their blood pressure was way higher and their view of that man was extreme, much lower. They had much more resentment. Expressing the resentment made the resentment build. It's cathartic, getting it all out there, put them in a tizzy, worked them into a frenzy, increased their resentment. And we've been taught, we've been taught to let it out and say foolish things in private at least where it's not hurting anyone and it's hurting you. You ever get, you say, I've heard, you would just be honest. Yes, be honest, but don't dig in and, and entrench yourself in self-defeating rage, self-pity, unbelief. Poor me, everything is terrible. You just said it. You just, you just, if you think it, it has a certain level of power, but now you've declared it with words that have power and you've cemented it in your psychology. You've, you're, you're, you're forming, you're being formed by what you do and say in private. And it's, is anyone tracking with what I'm saying so far? Okay. 
I call that the mean interviewer experiment. Uh, and again, the heart, once the heart chooses a thing, then the mind will justify it. And so if you're out there screaming in the woods about how so-and-so is a big jerk, what you're doing is you're, 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 that's a, that's a, you're taking steps, like ben, like ben Franklin's friend. Ta you're taking steps. Now what's your mind going to do? Dude, if I'm out here screaming in the woods about so-and-so, they must be a completely terrible person. And, so, and then it spirals. And by little steps and degrees, I go home and I talk to my wife about the thing that happened at the store. I can't believe it. And then I repeat that story to the next person. I can't believe it, what they did to me, what they did to me, what they did to me. I'm a good person. Because all of us believe that, guys. We all believe that we're decent, good people. Most of us, I shouldn't say all. Most of us have some sense that we're decent, good people. Some of us don't think that. I was a Calvinist once. I thought we were all disgusting worms worse than Satan. That's a lot of fun to believe, though, too. It's a lot nicer to, it's a lot nicer, and it's a lot nicer to believe that that sense of rightness that we're all trying so hard to protect is actually an illusion. We've got a righteousness, but it has nothing to do with what we do yet. It actually, we've got a righteousness that is so strong that it allows us to admit because we're not threatened by the realization that this is how lost we were. This is how loved I am, but this is also how lost I am. This is what it takes to save someone like me. I'm not good people. Am I, does this make sense? And so this, this thing that I'm trying to protect is actually fig leaves. When Adam and Eve, when the knowledge of good and evil came online, the first thing they realized is, oh man, we're, we're wrong. We sinned. And they go hiding from God. These justifications, I'm a good person. I'm not selfish. That fig leaves, man. This is the sin problem. And it doesn't go away just because we're born again. We actually literally have to remind ourselves, oh, that's, that's, that's the old man. I'm defending myself again. Because it's when we get triggered that, that, that what's really going on under the surface comes out, and then we go, oh, no. Normally, we can repress that stuff. But when we get too afraid, or when we get too hurt, or when we get too mad, then what we really believe down there that we're trying to hide from ourselves, we can't hide from ourselves anymore because it just right out. And this is all about protecting our fragile view of ourself. It's kind of like, I, I said the two, the two beliefs can't hold together. Oh no, what am I going to do? And so I justify myself at the cost of facing truth. And it's, it, psycholog, psychologists call that um, cognitive dissonance. You know what dissonance is, right? Dissonance is like when I play two notes that are too close together and they sound wrong. That's harmony. You're one and you're five. Let's add a third. A four. A two. One, two, five. But what happens, what, what, what happens when I do this? That's dissonance. This, when, I, when I write fake love songs to my wife, <laughs> dissonance. And we hate dissonance. We want to resolve dissonance. We want to turn it back to harmony. And there's two ways you can, you can resolve the dissonance. You can repent or you can lie to yourself. Which one costs less in the long term? 
Repent. Which one, which one costs less in the short term? Just lie to yourself. And we do it way too much. Oh, man. <laughs> so there's a, somebody can please turn to Luke 18 and read me the story of the two men that are at prayer. Read the first verse again. And also, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And then read the last verse again. Isn't that interesting that it's like the first verse is the guy who trusts in his own righteousness. He's justified in the way we've been talking about. That his mind says, I'm a good person. And so he's rationalizing that he is a good person and he's blind to the fact that he's not right with God and not right with people and not pleasing God. And the second guy, he's sure he's wrong with God. Think about that. He's sure he's wrong with God. But because he's repentant, he goes home and, and has Jesus declare him right with God. I'm not going to try to build my whole theology on this one story, but this story ought to make us very distrustful of our own sense of drawing righteousness from how well we think we're doing, how well we think we're living. Everything I've been saying, th this parable, again, is Jesus is a genius, and he knows that nobody knows you're, nobody, nobody goes, I'm a hypocrite. But that's not, that's why he, that's why he said, beware the yeast. And what does he mean by yeast, guys? It's a little bit yeah. over a little time. You just work it into the, but you put a little yeast into a big lump of flour and oil. And you, and you mix it and, a, and a, all it took was a little bit. Over time, it infected the whole. How do, we get, how do we get from one day we're just like in love with God, but then fast forward two years, and like, like for example, in, a, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you guys have been faithful, your theology is great, uh, your service is awesome, you're sacrificing, you're resisting the, you're resisting the sins you should be resisting. You're, man, you are just kicking it, man. I'm so pleased with you, but I got this one thing against you. You're not in love anymore. And you go, oh, that's the main thing. How can they, oh, that's the main thing. And, and how did they get there? A little at a time. That's all it is, a little at a time. If, if, if we have a huge bonfire and it's like so hot you can't even get close to it. But then we don't keep putting logs in that fire. A week later, you could lay a newborn baby right down on that same spot, and she wouldn't be hurt at all. Right? Because the fire has died. And it's possible to be in love and in integrity and walking with humility and hearing his voice and being quick to obey and quick to repent and quick to believe and quick to rejoice, quick to get on board. But by not putting logs on the fire, little by little, drift to a different place to where... That fire has died down to coals. And so Jesus in Revelation 2, he's telling that church, y'all, might have happened a little at a time, but it's, it's a big difference to me. I want you in love with me. 
Go back to the beginning, man. Light this fire. Be in love with me. And I love this idea of we can, we can be self-justified and, we'll, and we can go home okay, but it'll be justification of our own thinking. Or we can go home feeling like raw, but actually right with God. I, I love that whole concept of, and this right here is your key. This cross, this righteousness of Christ is the key that opens us up to a love that we're not going to risk losing. We can admit. We can admit when we messed up because there's grace. We can admit where we need to change because we're accepted on the basis of Jesus. We can admit there's some issues here. Everybody has blind spots. John says, if anybody in here in this room thinks you, you haven't messed up, you're deceiving yourself. And if you do admit it, you can confess it. And not only will God forgive it, he'll set it right. That's pretty amazing stuff. But how can you set it right if you don't admit it? And how could you admit it if you're still holding on to this fragile view of self that says, I'm a good person. How dare you convict me of sin? How dare you? How dare you? Tina, how dare you say that to me? I'm a believer, I believe. God sends prophets who really hurt our feelings. God sends prophets to say the things. We so don't, I preached a sermon years ago called We Kill Prophets. We Stone Prophets, I think was the name of the sermon. We Stone Prophets. And my point was, the prophets threaten our sense of who we are. We're so committed to God. We're believers, crying out loud. Who do you think you are? And so then, it's funny, because Jesus said, y'all build tombs and monuments and put up plaques, talk about how great the prophets used to be, but it was y'all's ancestors who killed them while you stoned the living prophets. You prove you're just like your parents. <laughs> Do you guys remember the first sermon Jesus preached? What, how did they respond? Who do you think you are? And they tried to throw him off a hill. Who do you think you are? Now that is a heck of a thing for you to say to me. Get him out of here. I just, man... We've got to get to the place of humility. And I think the only thing that can take us to that place of humility is, is to really grasp the idea that our righteousness is Christ. Because if my righteousness comes from how well I'm serving Christ, I will not be teachable. I will be fragile, defensive. And guys, I will admit, I have been very defensive at times. It, it was the one thing Richard Showalter pressed me on hard it's like, Tim, what do you have to lose? If they're right, if your critics are right, they're helping you grow. And if they're wrong, what would it possibly matter? <laughs> You've nothing to lose because your identity is secure. You're loved. You're a son. You've got a calling. He's not going to quit on you now. He's not going to change his mind about you, even if people do. So what are you getting defensive for? And then I go, oh, I guess it must be threatening my fragile sense of self. You know? And how can you be, the, be as bold as the prophets and be, be, an, be like Jeremiah, a bars of iron that the people can't break if you're fragile? And as soon, you're, if you're a prophet, and we're all called to have the boldness of the prophets, right? Jesus says, if you deny me before men, all it's going to show is you don't really know me. It hasn't sunken down in here. And when you get to heaven, you're going to discover that I'm going to deny you before my father because the truth is you didn't really know me and I didn't really know you. It was up here. It didn't get down into here. 
He's not saying I'm going to reject you because you because you disappointed me. He's saying it didn't get from here to here. It wasn't real. We didn't actually. You thought you knew me, but you didn't let me all the way in. And so every single one of us is supposed to be able to hear the word that says, you know, leap for joy when they speak evil of you and all that. Leap for joy because that's how they treated the true prophets. And then weep. Luke says, weep. You should be really scared when everyone likes you because that's how they treated the false prophets because false prophets come in and they tell people what? Everything you want to hear. You guys are beautiful. You're amazing. There's no sin here. Incredible. A plus. Here's $100. Awesome. Here's a Subway sandwich. You're just amazing. Here's a gift card to Olive Garden. Take your wife out. We go, oh, we want to bring that guy back. And then the true prophet of the Lord comes in and he starts to weep. And we go, what is he weeping about? And, we, and he doesn't even know yet because he's in touch with God's grief and he doesn't even know us enough to know what's going on. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then it's like, and then he brings a word and we go, that's offensive to me. You don't even know me. How dare you speak to me that way? And I go, well, guys, we just got to be open to the idea that because we have blind spots and be, listen to this word from the Lord. God said this so many times, like what, four or five times in the Bible? Very, like in this exact phraseology. Everyone I love, I discipline. Everyone I love and accept as a son, I bring correction. So, repent. Don't be discouraged. Don't be resentful. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Why would, you, why would you despise the Lord's discipline? How dare he say that to me after all I've done for the church? It's kind of funny when you say it out loud. It's not, you know what I mean? In your marriage. How dare they do that to me after all I do around here in this house? Right? Or how dare she say that to me after what I did slaving away in the hot sun all day and now she wants me to pick my underwear up off the floor? I'm not going to do it. Really, though? Really? You know what I'm saying? That's the breakdown of a relationship is what that is. And what is it coming from? It's coming from self-justification. It's fig leaves. All right. We need a more humble, realistic view of ourself. You have strengths. You also have weaknesses. You have things that you can see as clear as a bell. You see with prophetic eagle eyes from 20 miles away. And guess what? That don't mean you don't have blind spots. And if you're an eagle, you can see for 30 miles, but you can't see your own butt. Sorry. You need others for that. You need others to tell you, uh, you got a little situation. You might want to clean that up. And we go, huh? Me? No way. Did you see that? I preached at that conference. It was amazing. Three people got healed. You know what I mean? Okay, but that don't mean that you ain't a human. You got stuff to learn, grow in. I was joking to Adam Bauer tonight. I said, Jesus has set it up that we, it's like he put us in a maze and, and the whole point of the maze is it's impossible unless you cooperate. And he, and he thought, this is going to be great. They're going to understand this. They're going to get it in five minutes. It'll be love one another and they'll get out of the trap. Five minutes, it's all it's going to take. And then 2,000 years later, he is looking at the angels and they were all kind of like, it ain't funny anymore. I think they need to learn. I thought they'd get it by now. I mean, all it takes is be humble and love one another and cooperate. And the angel's like, can we go help them? And he's like, get down there. They, I thought they'd get it by now. Now, it's a joke. I'm being funny. 
But He has set it up that we can't get where we're supposed to get without each other. Because we all got blind spots and we, He only gave us a little bit of the, of the gift mix too. And that makes it funny too because I can do it myself. <laughs> you know, little kids? I can do it myself. No, you can't, buddy. <laughs> you can, there's some things you, are, you have to do yourself, but there's some things you ain't never going to get out of this locked room with by yourself. It's funny until it's not. And then we all cry for a long time because it's, the cost is too high. Um, the other thing is you have enemies. I know you think you're a sweetheart. You're just a great. Who would not like you? Who could hate you? You're just incredible. Well, every single one of us, if we go through life for very long, we're going to get at least a few people who will be glad to hear the news we died. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. That's just the truth. So... And when Jesus said, love your enemies, that actually applies to you too, not just to people who are in countries where they're getting their heads cut off. It just so happens that some of those enemies might, might be in your family. There might even be seasons in your life where your enemy is sleeping in the same bed with you. Because it's gotten so bad that they are now, the, now that's your enemy. You know, and I always said that you know, David, the Philistines were his enemy, but they couldn't really hurt him that bad. But Michael, his wife, boy, she really put the hurt on him. Saul, his father-in-law, David actually cared about Saul. He cared for him. So Saul could hurt him. He could hurt him a lot more than the Philistines. See, until you actually really love someone, they can't really be your enemy. But we're called to love our enemies. Let's get to solutions. The first solution is the cross, as I've been saying. The first solution is the righteousness of Christ. The first solution is to recognize that whatever is offending me is revealing me. And it's ex- whatever I, in the, in the midst of the stress and the anxiety and the fear, the thing I'm running to to warm my heart with the coldness of life, that fire that I'm rushing to, that thing, that's actually the righteousness that I'm depending on. And if it ain't Jesus, it's a problem. It's going to be, it's, it's going to let you down. It's going to let me down. And th- like this most recent chapter of our little journey together, whoo, doggies. It's exposed some stuff to me about me. I fought real hard to not lose this connection with you. And some of that was good and some of that was bad. Some of that was bad. I don't understand what of it was good and bad yet. The Lord knows, but I'm open to hearing. I just know that it triggered some stuff in me that exposed me to some idols And how could they say what they said? How could they see me that way? My wife and I are still struggling with that. How can they see me the way they see me? It's it's helpful. Trials are helpful. If you get a big heavy truck, go over a bridge, and the bridge breaks, you go, okay, that really taught us a lot about what that bridge was capable of doing. That was very educational. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely educational. Well, and then you go, okay, what do we need to change? Yeah. Right. Because God doesn't want to set this up. Right. He doesn't say, God does not prepare the world for his kids. 
Guess not God. God's not going around in the world going, it's just my precious baby's got to have everything just right. Mm, we can't have anyone hate them. Everything has to go well. He's like not that way at all. He's like, I'm going to put so much Jesus inside of them that when people see them have joy in the midst of suffering, they're going to lose their job and they're not going to get bitter. They're going to be slandered and they're not going to respond in kind. They're going to be, they're going to be gentle. People are going to be talking bad about them and they're not going to talk bad about anyone when that happens to them. That God's setting it up to not prepare the path for the child, but he's setting it up to put Jesus in us that he's preparing the child for the path, right? He wants us to be able to do hard things. Like the whole New Testament has this mindset of whenever you're going through a trial, consider it like a, a super big honor because God trusts you enough to want to put Christ on display because a sermon is not the best way to preach Christ to the world. How you respond to suffering is the best way to preach Christ to the world. How you respond to mistreatment is the best way to preach Christ to the world. Because when they mistreat you, they wouldn't mistreat you if they didn't first misjudge you. And when they misjudge you, what is it doing? It's triggering everything we just talked about. How can they view me the way that they view me? They don't view me how I view me. This is wrong. This isn't fair. My life is hard. And all I'm trying to do is the right thing. I'm good people. Wah. Right? But that's not perspective at all. All that's showing is I'm still clinging on to my righteousness and I need to come over here in his righteousness and consider it pure joy, my brothers. James chapter 1, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because this is going to be a major thing where the Holy Spirit grows you up, makes you like Jesus, puts him on display. My friend Adam, years ago, said to me, oh, I'm so envious of you. I said, why? And he's like, because you have a trial. And I was like, you're sick in the head. <laughs> what is wrong with you? You're a sadist. And he's like, no, I'm a Christian. <laughs> yeah, he's a Christian, man. So, and, uh, the, uh, so his righteous, uh, Jesus is righteousness. Luther called it an alien righteousness. Yeah, and he didn't mean like, you know, the movie Alien. He meant, <laughs> he meant it was Jesus' rightness. Jesus' obedience and Jesus' good relationship with God given to me as a gift. Because if I'm depending on mine, help me, help us all. But if I got his, it's durable, it lasts through everything, it's a gift. So since I didn't earn it, I don't, I don't keep it by continuing to, to deserve it. I don't, I'm not being measured. I'm not being evaluated. He loves me, he loves me not. He's chosen to love me and he said he's never going to leave me. He's already adopted me, signed the papers, and he's not going to kick me out. If I'm sinning, he'll, he'll correct me. He'll sit down with me and he'll look me in my eyes and he'll tell me what I've done wrong and he'll make it possible. He'll actually give me a chunk of what I can work on that I, that I actually can do. And he won't expect me to go from baby to like mature in three minutes. He will allow lots of sin into my life because I ain't ready to deal with that yet. And he will let me deal with the sins I'm able to handle today to grow into the man I'm supposed to be at this stage of my life. In other words, he's not a discouraging, harsh father. I think we've all had fathers who disciplined us. Well, most of us have had fathers who disciplined us. And some of the time, they disciplined us incorrectly. They expected more of us than we really needed to have expected of us quicker. Maybe they, they were more harsh than loving, or maybe they were too tolerant and not. But God disciplines us as a perfect father. And, and like, his discipline is not, it, it, there's a temptation to despise it. Hebrews 12. I got to put Hebrews 12 on the board. 
because I've mentioned it enough. There's a temptation to despise it. Resist that temptation. I'm going to try to shut this down now. Okay. Jesus is a genius. And so when he says his practical things of love your enemies, when he says pray, or do good to those who hurt you, give to those who need or who try to even take advantage of you, turn the other cheek when you're slapped. That's, I mean, come on. Repay insults with kindness and pray kind, good things over those who speak and wish evil over you. Now, why does he say this? Because he knows exactly how the heart works. And he knows that if you don't respond like this, then their sin against you will create sin in you and you'll become hateful people who look just like the devil and you will look nothing like your heavenly father. But if you can choose to exercise your will, just like Ben Franklin realized, if you can choose to exercise your will and walk out the actions of love and blessing, shut your mouth so you don't curse. Do not do the catharsis thing in private. Do not call three friends to nurse that wound. Call three friends to bring strength and, and help you praise God and pray blessing on them and construct a plan because the biggest problem is not what they're doing to you. The biggest danger is what you're about to do to you as you steward your heart into a wrong path. It's life or death at that moment. And when, like, you need friends around you who can say, I'm, I'm going to be praying for you. To for, we're going to pray some forgiveness prayers right now, tonight. You've been dangerously close to, to resenting them in bitterness tonight. And I'm not going to accept it just because I am a good, safe, non-judgmental listening ear. We need to get rid of that non-judgmental listening ear garbage. It's modern. It's not gospel. We need a discerning ear where we bring correction to each other. I feel like I'm just about done preaching for the night. But you have enemies. And you go, well, who? When I say who hurts you, you already think of somebody right away. Who hurts you? That's your enemy you need to love. Who hurts you? That's your enemy you need to forgive. Who hurts you? Who did wrong to you? Who despised you? Who overlooked you? Who excluded you? Who talked down to you? Who betrayed you? These are the people we must act out love toward. We must if we're to be free. Otherwise, it'll be a massive blind spot and we'll walk around with hatred in our heart, resentment in our heart, and our thought will say, I'm a loving person. I'm a good person. I'm a Christian but what's in here will be toxic. You feeling me? Dorothea Chupp once said to me, unforgiveness is like drinking poison expecting your enemy to die. And I've said things to God like, oh, forgiveness is hard. And he's like, no, no, Tim. Unforgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is easy. Unforgiveness is hard. Holding on to that hurt is hard. Letting it go is easy. Holding on to it is hard. Yeah. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to you tonight and we say we are the one in need. We're not that one who's, yeah, I'm righteous, I did it all, I'm so perfect. No, God, we are the ones who have fallen short of your glory in a number of ways. And yet we're your children. And yet you love us. 
God, we welcome your correction. We thank you that we can hold these two truths together, that we don't have to justify ourselves because you are our justification. So this is a safe place for us to admit our failures and faults and blind spots. And now, God, we speak blessing in Jesus' name. God, I release the hurt to you. I give up my right to punish or withhold love. And I say, God, you be the judge. I am not, I'm not a right judge on this. I trust you to be my defender. I trust you to be the good judge and fair judge. And I hand them over to you. And I pray, God, for blessing to flow on them. forgive in Jesus name not help me forgive I'm not asking for help I'm declaring in Jesus name I forgive in Jesus name I release I give up all right to punish in Jesus name I forgive say it out loud guys with me I forgive in Jesus name again I forgive in Jesus name God, we speak blessing on them. We speak health on them. We speak wholeness on them. We speak love on them and mercy on them. We speak fellowship with your Holy Spirit on them. We pray that you would strengthen and equip them and bring them into the fullness of blessing. We are not holding these sins against them and we ask even that you would not hold these sins against them in your great mercy. Amen.